Catholic historians know how the saints act in history. In my lecture last month, I described one of them acting, the Emperor Karl of Austria. Those who study the life and work of our Lord Jesus Christ also know how God works in history. As I mentioned in my lecture last month, Pope Leo XIII warned us in 1887 that in the 20th century the devil would be unchained and let loose upon us to do his worst. As part of the wages of sin, the devil also acts in history. The best example, the most thoroughly established historically, is the fantastic story of Rasputin in St. Petersburg, the capital of Russia, on the night of December 29, 30, 1916. We have two separate and independent accounts of that harrowing night when the devil walked among men. He took over the body of the Satanist known as Rasputin. Rasputin was killed at least ten times that night, depending on how you count them, but he would not die. I think in the end the Archangel Michael, who has been fighting the devil for eons, came down from heaven to kill the devil-possessed Rasputin when men were unable to do so. At the end of 1916, Russia, like most of the Western world, had been engulfed in a hopeless, useless war for nearly three years, a war that no one could win, a war of unprotected men charging machine guns, a war that was destroying Western civilization. The Pope and the Blessed Emperor Karl of Austria fully comprehended its horror and the ruin it was inflicting, but could do nothing to stop it despite their best efforts. I described some of those efforts in my lecture last month. Meanwhile in Russia waited the ultimate revolutionary Lenin, ready to take advantage of the suicide of the capitalist world to make a revolution which he would lead and through it conquer the world. He almost succeeded and built an evil empire which ruled one-third of the human race for a generation. I grew up with that. Fortunately, those of you here tonight never experienced it as a reality in the world. The devil rejoiced in Lenin and Hitler, who in many ways imitated Lenin and followed his lead, for example, in creating a one-party state. Lenin and Hitler were the devil's chosen agents. The devil personally took a hand in bringing Lenin to power in Russia. That is the essence of my story tonight. Tsarist Russia lay under the curse of all absolute monarchies. With all power in the hands of the Tsar, anyone who could control or influence the Tsar faced the constant temptation to aggrandize himself. The Tsar, Nicholas II, was the weakest absolute monarch since Louis XVI of France, who met a similar fate in the French Revolution. But in one way they were different. Louis XVI was blessed with a wife of rare spirit, perhaps the most misunderstood woman in all history, Marie Antoinette of Austria, a brave and devout Catholic who died a martyr's death. The wife of Tsar Nicholas II was Alexandra, who so dominated her husband that he once wrote, her a, letter, wrote a letter to her which read as follows, quote, Tender thanks for the severe written scolding. I read it with a smile, because you speak to me as though I were a child. Sign your poor little weak-willed hubby. End quote. For any man to write such a letter is against the proper order of nature, which makes the man the head of the house. 
Both Nicholas and Alexandra had to bear the terrible cross of knowing and agonizing over the fact that their little son and heir, Alexis, their only son, had the incur incurable disease hemophilia, which prevents the victim's blood from clotting. Over the years, Alexandra convinced herself that a man she knew, who pretended to be a wandering monk, but who was involved in satanic rituals and was actually called Rasputin, meaning the dissolute one, could cure her son of his bleeding episodes and ease the almost intolerable pain which any bruise caused him. The devil does not cure, but he can pretend to cure. Rasputin had opened himself to the devil, and the devil seized him. Rasputin's is the best documented case of demonic possession in all history. Others could see the evil in this man. Just one look at Rasputin's sinister face, even in the photograph, is enough to terrify us even now. Several heroic Russian priests confronted Rasputin directly, threatening to beat him or expel him from the country. But Alexandra insisted to Nicholas that he was our friend and prevented any action from being taken against him. By the end of 1916, the Russian people had learned of the trust placed in Rasputin by the imperial family and the intimacy they had with him. Since Rasputin had exposed himself more than once in Moscow restaurants, this awareness was devastating to the Tsar's prestige. And the Tsar was the Russian government. Anything that hurt him hurt the entire nation. Rasputin publicly boasted of his intimacy with Tsar Nicholas and Alexandria, his wife, telling how the Tsar had told him, quote, you are Christ, and how Alexandra had written to him, quote, I kiss your hands and lean my head on your blessed shoulder. Oh, how light do I feel then. I only wish one thing, to fall asleep, to fall asleep forever on your shoulders and in your arms, end quote. Rasputin was thought able to hypnotize people. This amazing letter suggests that he could do that. To the royal family, Rasputin turned the, his mask of counterfeit holiness. All others saw only the savage, leering countenance of a satyr. Rasputin rarely washed and had a foul body, body odor. His drunkenness was as pervasive as his filth, and usually in public. His shameless seduction of women including some of the highest in the land, was notorious, frequent, and often wide open for the public to see. Obscenities spewed from his mouth, and he told people this was how he talked to the Empress of Russia. That was a lie, but who facing Rasputin would be sure of the truth? In 1911, Rasputin admitted to an accusing group of churchmen that he had recently raped a nun. In the fall of 1915, Nicholas left St. Petersburg and went to the fighting front. He thought that his presence there could help the Russian army, which was suffering defeat after devastating defeat. He could not. He had no skill as a military leader. The worst effect of his absence was he left Alexandra as a regent. She, in turn, totally relied on Rasputin. By February 1916, Rasputin was directing the government of Russia through his creature, the petty, corrupt schemer Stürmer, whom he had made Prime Minister and Minister of the Interior, responsible for internal security and for allocating Russia's dwindling food supplies. From this point on, every government minister in Russia held office only on Rasputin's sufferance. 
Working through Alexandra, he manipulated the weak Tsar Nicholas. After Stimmer was dismissed as prime minister, having proved to be, quote, absolutely incompetent and a complete nullity, end quote, the Ministry of the Interior was given to the absurd, half-mad Protopopov, called Pretty Polly, who was recommended by Harris Putin. Two honest observers, Grand Duke Nicholas, the commander of the army and director of police Klimovich, both described the government of Russia in 1916 as sheer chaos in the midst of a destroying war. A veritable parade of warnings in writing and in person, impassioned and desperate, pleading and hoping against hope, came to Tsar Nicholas from his close relatives and true friends, as well as from Russian patriots of every class and position who loved their battle country and had some idea of what was happening in his capital. Some of these appeals Nicholas rejected in flashes of uncharacteristic petulance. More he gently parried. The most hard-driven and convincing he seemed on occasion to respond to, only to retreat again when a confrontation loomed with his wife, with the shadow of Rasputin behind her. <clears throat> As the blood-soaked year 1916 came to an end, Four men in death-cold St. Petersburg were picking their way through frozen streets toward a villa at the edge of the city. They were Grand Duke Dmitri Pavlovich, the Tsar's first cousin, Vladimir Kurishkovich, the most ardent monarchist in the Russian parliament, the Duma, a doctor named Lazarbert, and an army captain named Sukotin. The villa to which they were going belonged to Prince Philip Yusupov, scion of one of the great noble families of Russia, husband of the Tsar's beautiful niece, Irina. The four men had resolved to seek the salvation of Russia that night by assassinating Rasputin, but he did not prove easy to assassinate, for they killed him no less than ten times. We have eyewitness accounts of what happened by Yusupov and by Perishkovich. This lecture is based on those accounts. As the four men drove through the frozen streets of St. Petersburg, it was just before midnight. Twenty minutes' drive away, the Prime Minister of Russia, now as Putin's creature Protopopov, was just leaving the house of his mentor, who then dismissed his guard, despite Protopopov's warning that plots were afoot against his life. Rasputin knew that already. Several days before, he had written a letter to his secretary, Semanovich, a letter written as though from one already dead. Its author identified himself as the spirit of Gregory Efimovich Rasputin Novik of the village of Prokrovsky. The letter predicted his imminent assassination and said prophetically, quote, if I am murdered by boyars, nobles, and if they shed my blood, the hands, their hands will remain soiled with my blood for 25 years they will not wash their hands from my blood. They will leave Russia. Brothers will kill brothers, and they will kill each other and hate each other. And for 25 years, there will be no nobles in the country. This, in fact, was to happen. Tsar of the land of Russia, if you hear the sound of the bell, which will tell you that Gregory has been killed, you must know this. If it was your relations, and remember the Tsar's first cousin was one of the would-be assassins. Uh, if it was your relations who have wrought my death, then not one of your family, that is to say, not one of your children or relations, will remain alive for more than two years. 
they will be killed by the Russian people. And this still happened. The car pulled up at Yusupov's luxurious dwelling. The conspirators conferred. Yusupov showed them the elaborately decorated cellar where the assassination was to take place. There were four bottles of sweet wine and some cakes, three rose, three chocolate. Dr. Lazarbert had brought cyanide, one of the deadliest and fastest acting of all poisons, which kills in seconds and may even act through unbroken skin. Therefore, Dr. Lazarbert put on rubber gloves before he crushed several cyanide capsules with a knife and put a killing dose into each of the three rose cakes. Then he threw the rubber gloves into the fire. He left several more cyanide capsules with Perishkovich to poison the wine. We must remember that this was a doctor who knew exactly how much cyanide is needed to kill. Fifteen minutes later, Perishkovich put the remaining cyanide into three glasses of Madeira wine, Rasputin's favorite, and checked his heavy, savage revolver to make sure it was loaded. At one o'clock in the morning of December 31st, the last day of the year 1916, Yusupov picked up Rasputin at his house. Rasputin took time to comb his beard, for he thought he was going to meet Yusupov's beautiful wife, Irina. Actually, she was far away in the Crimea. Rasputin put on a white silk blouse embroidered with cornflowers. His normally foul body odor was masked by a liberal application of cheap soap. After half an hour, Rasputin was ready to go, and at two o'clock in the morning, he entered Yusupov's house and was taken immediately to the cellar. Upstairs, a primitive gramophone played raucously over and over the rocking tune of Yankee Doodle as a way of suggesting to Rasputin that the noble ladies he'd come to see were diverting themselves with the music. Yusupov went down to the cellar alone with Rasputin. He offered him the two rolled cakes. At first, Rasputin refused them. Then he ate one, then another. He held a lethal dose of, dose of cyanide prepared by a doctor. So these were the first and second deaths of Rasputin. But nothing happened. Yusupov then gave Rasputin an unpoisoned glass of wine, then a poisoned glass, which he drank. Rasputin's hand went to his throat, and he stood up. Is anything the matter? Yusupov asked. Nothing much, Rasputin replied. Just an irritation in the throat. That's very good, Madeira. Give me some more. That, that was his third day. Yusupov gave him a second glass of the cyanide lace wine. Rasputin drained it at a single gulp. That was his fourth then. Once again, nothing happened. Then, as Yusupov tells us in his harrowing account of that hellish night, quote, all of a sudden his expression changed to one of fiendish hatred. Never before had he inspired me with such horror. I felt an indescribable loathing for him and was ready to throw myself upon him and throttle him. I felt that he knew why I had brought him there and what I intended to do to him. A mute and deadly conflict seemed to be taking place between us. I was aghast. Another moment and I should have gone under. I felt that confronted by those satanic eyes, I was beginning to lose my self-control. A strange feeling of numbness took possession of me. My head reeled, end quote. Rasputin's head bent and fell into his hands. Then he raised his head and asked Yusupov to play for him on his guitar and to sing him a song. It was 2.30 in the morning. 
Finally, Yusubov made an excuse to leave the cellar room and hurried upstairs. Dr. Lazarbert had fainted from the stress. The other three all had revolvers out and wanted to rush down together and kill Rasputin once and for all. But Yusubov was determined to try again by himself alone. Try again himself alone. Taking Prince Dmitri's revolver, he went back down the stairs. Rasputin appeared ill, but quickly improved after another glass of wine. Yusubov held the revolver behind his back. Atop a cupboard hung a 17th century crucifix made of rock, crystal, and silver. Yusubov went over to it and stood beneath it. I love this cross, he said. Did he know that any cross or crucifix can put the devil to flight? It is not clear from his account that he knew that, but now he had spectacular proof of it. Yusupov said, quote, Gregory Efimovich, you had better look at the crucifix and say a prayer before it, end quote. When he spoke these words, the almost paralyzing fear left Yusupov. Rasputin, facing the cross, no longer seemed to have power to impose it. His cold gray eyes were fixed on the crucifix. Yusupov brought the revolver from behind his back and fired it at Rasputin, who was standing next to him. He could not have missed him at that range. This was the fourth death of Rasputin. Rasputin roared like a wild beast. The crash of his falling body resounded through the, through the house. The conspirators rushed down the stairs. The body lay on a thick rug made from the fur of a polar bear, white as snow. They dragged the body off the rug. There was no blood. Even a drop would have shown vividly on the pure white surface. There was only one small red spot on Rasputin's white corn-flowered silk blouse. The conspirators examined the bullet wound. It was in the region of the heart. Rasputin was not yet dead, for they could hear his breath rasping and rattling. But he was still and must be dying. The conspirators now put into effect their plan to fake a return by Rasputin to his house. Captain Sukotin put on Rasputin's coat and hat and drove away in the direction from which he had come, in case the secret police had followed him to Yusupov's house. Grand Duke Dmitri, Dr. Lazarbert, and Sukotin, disguised as Rasputin, departed in the car, leaving Yusupov and Perishkovich with the body of the man they thought they had killed. But he could not be killed, at least not by men. Attempting to calm their shaken nerves, Yusupov and Rushkovich smoked and talked. Talked. They perhaps spoke of a brighter future for Russia, a splendid recovery, now that the shadow of Gregory, son of Ephim the dissolute, had been removed from the imperial throne. Yusupov went back down into the cellar. Rasputin was still lying motionless. There was now a little blood, but no pulse. The body was still warm. Moved by an impulse he could never explain, Yusupov shook the body violently. The left eyelid fluttered. Then it opened. It said the right eye. Those hypnotic gray-green eyes and fastened upon Yusupov a look of diabolical hatred. A moment suspended in time when the darkest and most ancient horrors that haunt the human soul focused on Yusupov in that darkened cellar room of the dead of night. And the body of Rasputin rose up with foaming lips and a wild beast roar, grasping Yusupov by the shoulder, reaching for his throat, 
repeating in a hoarse whisper over and over Yusupov's name. Felix, 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 Felix. Exerting every ounce of his strength, whetted by the utmost extremity of terror, Yusupov tore himself free of the nightmare rip and rushed up the stairs, screaming, Perishkovich, shoot, shoot, he's alive, he's getting away. For a moment, Perishkovich must have thought that Yusupov had gone mad. He made no response. Rasputin had already been killed four times. Then he heard a scrambling sound on the cellar steps. Rasputin was climbing up the stairs on all fours, roaring. Neither of the two men at the top of the stairs could move. They stood stock still as though paralyzed. As the shape of Rasputin humped and staggered up the last few stairs, across the hall, through the door, and out into the snowy courtyard, saying, Felix, Felix, I'll tell it all to the Tsarina. It was between three and four o'clock in the morning, the loneliest hour of the night. There is an ancient saying that at night the powers of evil are exalted. They certainly were exalted that night. Perishkovich was a crack shot. He drew his savage revolver and began firing. His first two bullets missed. <clears throat> this scene from hell was utterly unlike the firing range of the, at the Semyonov barracks, where he regularly practiced. The whiplash echo of the futile shots rang through the silent night. Rasputin scrambled on. He was nearing the only unlocked gate of the courtyard, which opened directly on the street. He was escaping, escaping. <clears throat> Perishkovich bit his hand to steady himself. He fired again and again. The bullet struck Rasputin in the shoulder and in the neck, both wounds later pronounced mortal by medical examiners. It was his fifth death. Rasputin collapsed in a snowdrift, grinding his teeth in rage. Perishkovich knew that the shots must have been heard. Two soldiers were in the street. He opened the gate, called them over, and told them, I've killed Rasputin, enemy of Russia and of the Tsar. But he had not, for the thing could not be killed. The soldiers embraced and kissed Perishkovich, saying, Thank God. He told them not to tell anyone else what they had seen and heard. Yes, Excellency, they replied, We are Russian people, have no doubts of us. Then they helped him drag Rasputin's body back into the house. Repeating as though in a trance, Rasputin's Felix, Felix, Felix. Yusupov, after being violently sick, came back to the body and gazed upon his now blood-spattered and distorted face. Then he heard a faint whining sound. He saw an eye open. Leaping upon the body in a renewed frenzy of terror and loathing, he beat his head with a two-pound, beat his head, its head in, with a two-pound leaded walking stick. It was Rasputin's sixth death. Grand Duke Dmitri, Dr. Lazarev, and Captain Sukotin had been now returned to the car. Yusupov and Dr. Lazarev were unmanned by their night of terror. Perishkovich now took charge. He, Dmitri, and Sukotin now put the body in the car. It had been wrapped in a blue curtain with a rope tied tightly around its arms and legs. Perishkovich felt the body. It was still warm. He then drove to the Petrovsky Bridge over the Staraya branch of the Neva River. There was a sentry box on the bridge. The sentry was asleep, but the conspirators did not know that. They stopped the car, turned off the engine and the lights, 
and hurriedly dumped the body headfirst over the parapet into a hole in the ice kept open by the swift current of the river. On its way down, the tumbling body struck the bridge abutment, abutment, breaking its head open. It was his seventh death. In their hurry, the conspirators had forgotten to attach the weights to the body they had brought to sink it. Now the weights were hastily and loosely attached to Rasputin's coat. One boot was thrown down, but it sailed in the wind and landed on the ice instead of in the water of the hole. The other boot lay forgotten in the car. It was a little after four o'clock in the morning. The car started up and drove away from the Petrovsky Bridge. Under the black water at the edge of the ice, the shape of Rasputin bobbed and writhed. The cyanide from three poisoned cakes and then from two poisoned glasses of wine had long since passed from the stomach to the intestines of the body, where it kills swiftly and unerringly, most surely of all in a lethal dose prepared by a doctor. Yusufov's bullet lay near its heart. Perishkovich's fourth bullet was in its neck. Its head, battered by Yusufov's lead-weighted stick, was broken open in several places by the impact of its head-first fall from the bridge. Blood from the gaping wounds eddied in the water. Gregory, son of Ephim the Dissolute, had already died seven times that night. Now came the eighth and ninth deaths, drowning and freezing. No man could live more than a few minutes in the ice-choked neighbor river in St. Petersburg at 60 degrees north latitude at 4 o'clock in the morning on the last day of the year in the devouring waters under the polar wind. The shape moved. It held its breath. It tried to draw breath and water began to enter its lungs. But his hands were busy, those big fleshy hands with their long, thick fingers. The left hand clenched into a fist, straining against his bonds. The right hand twisted and turned until it freed itself entirely from the hastily knotted rope, whose grip upon left hand and legs alone was still keeping the body from rising to the surface through the hole in the ice and swimming to shore. Fingers tugged at the bonds and the knots. No man saw it. No dog howled. There was only snow and stillness, white enveloped by black. The scene fades from our sight. We know no more. Not for our human minds and eyes is that last paddle in the dark river under the ice, nor may we know from what far realms its ultimate combatants were drawn. I think for the Archangel Michael, Satan's immemorial foe, whose feast day we have just celebrated, came down from heaven in answer to all the prayers for his aid, which Pope Leo XIII had asked for and offered since 1887, and put an end to the thing that was working on his mutant body. This was the tenth and final death of the monster. The Arctic night closed in, to be followed hours later by the pale dawn and the pale brief day of the far north and deepest winter. That day, Rasputin's boot was found on the ice and tracks in the snow by the Petrovsky Bridge. The authorities began a search on the frozen river the next day, using divers and policemen traversing the ice. One of the policemen making a hole in the ice found Rasputin's fur coat. The body was recovered 200 feet from the bridge. It was entirely encased in ice but his lungs were full of water, signifying that he had been still alive and trying to breathe underwater 
and his right hand was free of the constricting rope and reaching out. It was dead at last, but so was Imperial Russia. The country was ready to be taken by the devil's man, Lenin, whom he had brought to power by his possession of Rasputin. If you study the history of the communism, you will understand why the devil wanted communism established.